Samin Nozrat went from eating at the acclaimed Californian restaurant Shapenice to begging for a job there. Props to her, she got one. And after several years sharing a kitchen with owner Alice Waters, now she's written one of the most intriguing cookbooks in recent memory. You know, I had a light bulb moment and I was like, salt, fat, acid, heat. And this like secret kitchen information that nobody ever had shared mm. with me. So I was like, I'm going to write a book about this one day. Salt, fat, heat, acid is not just a cookbook, but a manifesto of sorts geared towards teaching you the principles of good cooking so that you can be a great cook. Samin sat down with our own Dave Matthews to reflect on rewriting the cookbook rules. I'm Maggie Scardingfield, and you're listening to Gourmet Traveler's Set Menu. How did you go from a white-eyed kid saving your pennies and eating at Chez Panisse in Berkeley uh, to cooking there and then developing these underlying principles that you call the keys to cooking well? It was definitely not a direct route. <laughs> so I grew up in Southern California. My parents are from Iran. And, you know, I just grew up eating delicious Persian food and being at the table, being in the car with my mom on the way to go grocery shopping. So that was pretty much my exposure to food and cooking was just part of our family life as a kid. And then when I moved to Berkeley, uh, I studied English and literature and poetry and um my sophomore year, my boyfriend and I saved our pennies, as you said, hmm. <laughs> and it really was. It was we had a big box full of coins for seven months uh, to eat at Chez Panisse, which I had never really even heard of, but he really wanted to go there, hmm. and so I learned a little bit about the place beforehand. I just knew that it was a really fancy restaurant, and I had never been to a fancy restaurant before, and. When we went there to eat, it was like going to someone's house. And I just felt so welcome and loved. And the food was good, but just the feeling of being cared for was so incredible there. And so I just was so inspired by my experience there. And I had a kind of a very funny experience at the, during dessert time where um, all the other courses were things that I had maybe heard of before. Had a, had There was a salad, a beautiful salad with like lardons of pancetta there was a soup a little broth that had halibut in it and i had never had halibut before so i felt like a little bit scared to eat this new fish which is really now like the most mild fish of all fish you mm. know <laughs> and then we had guinea hen as the main course and when the server brought us souffle for dessert she brought a chocolate souffle and she said do you know how to eat this have you ever had this before and I I said, oh, no, please show me. And she said, well, you poke a hole with your little spoon and you pour the sauce in. And that way you have every bite has some sauce. So I took a bite and she said, how is it? And I said, oh, it's really good. But you know what would make it even better? <laughs> <laughs> because I was 19 years old and I had no idea that it's really rude to tell uh, like somebody in a fancy restaurant how to make their food better. Yeah, sure thing. And so she said, <laughs> she said, what? And I said, oh, this would be so good with cold milk. Mm. And she just sort of laughed and she's like, you want milk? And I said, yes, because I said and I believe and I still maintain that warm chocolatey things are so good with cold milk. And so she brought me cold milk and then she also brought us two glasses of dessert wine to teach us the refined accompaniment. <laughs> and like what I didn't know at the time was that, you know, in fine dining and in Europe, it's considered really gross to drink milk after 10 a.m. And so so I was like kind of outing myself as a baby. And it was just this wonderful experience. It was very eye opening and really sensual. And so I always worked throughout college and I needed a job. So I wrote a letter asking to be hired as a busser, you know, just bussing tables. And I brought it in. And they said, oh, you have to bring that to the um, service manager. So they brought me around the corner to her office. And like I knocked on the door. And when she opened it, it was the souffle lady. And she remembered me. And so she hired me. And um, 
I started the next day. And I think she was probably just really desperate because I had no experience. There was no reason for her to hire me. So I started busting tables the next day. And I always thought I would graduate college and be a writer of some kind. And um, as that was becoming more clear to me that that's not exactly how life works, you mm-hmm. know, I'd probably have to go into advertising or something. Um I was in this beautiful kitchen being so inspired by these cooks and they were like perfectly gleaming white coats cooking the most delicious food and it just felt like I wanted to be part of that. It just was, certainly Chez Panisse exists um, for its cooks and not a lot of restaurants are like that and it was just a really amazing place to walk through the kitchen and just see that the cooks were so serious and knew what they were doing and they could sort of make anything delicious out of thin air. So I begged them to let me start cooking too. And the menu there changes every single day. So I would come in and I would just watch these cooks be assigned totally different dishes from day to day. One day, rack of lamb. The next day, fish soup. The next day, ravioli. The next day, couscous. And so they were cooking from all of these different countries, all these different foods, and there didn't seem to be like a method or a mad you know, to the madness. There was no recipe book that they followed. Nobody asked what temperature the oven should be. No one said, oh, what ingredients precisely or how much. They just would get up and start cooking. And I had no idea how they knew how to make really, it appeared to me like everything. Mm. And over time, I saw that there were sort of these just four basic elements, these four basic tenets that we always clung to in the kitchen. They were always tasting for salt. They were always salting their meat in advance. They were always deciding between olive oil and butter. Should I heat the olive oil for this to make this thing crispy? Should I keep this butter cold to keep this dough flaky, you know, acid? There was always sort of this secret acid being added, whether it was a few drops of vinegar or a squeeze of lemon or a little bit of cheese. And, of course, heat, where no matter, you know, if they were cooking over coals, there's no thermometer over the coals. And even the oven dial was, you know, had worn away the numbers. So there were just this way where people were really using their senses and they were watching the way that the food responded to the heat rather than obsessing over whether they were cooking over coals or a stove or an oven. And so to me, after about a year of volunteering in the kitchen and just sort of having a constant headache, I felt like I sort of saw, you know, I had a light bulb moment and I was like, salt, fat, acid, heat. This is the key. This is how you guys know everything. And I went to one of the chefs and I said, oh, I figured this thing out. Salt, fat, acid, heat. And he just looked at me. He's like, yeah, we all know that, you know, duh. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, well, why didn't anyone tell me, you know? And um, I felt really betrayed and like, (laughs) because there was just, you know, they had given me these lists of cookbooks to go read, but we never used cookbooks. And so Mm -hmm. I just felt like there was this thing missing between professional cooks and like somebody trying to learn was this basic information, this like secret kitchen information that nobody ever had shared Mm. with me so i was like i'm gonna write a book about this one day well that's the whole point that's what shapenese does that's what alice waters does right like the focus is on the ingredients first like she develops networks with farmers with growers um really trying to source produce that's like quite interesting that's that's flavorsome flavorful um and then, you know, working out how to present those in the best way possible, right? It's not like the dishes are really flashy, not necessarily uh, really complex, um, but the flavors are, right? Yeah, it's all about taste. Like, you start with the thing that tastes good. And for me, the way that I like to describe it is that cooking school, you know, Alice's cooking style and all of us who've come from her kitchen we really put flavor first. So it starts with the raw ingredient. And then to me, I personally think, what steps can I take 
to either preserve or heighten the natural flavors of this food. And usually it's doing as little as possible to it or maybe just browning it a little bit so you create contrast of texture and flavor or adding something acidic to, to heighten you know, the salty and the fatty. It's about manipulating the food as little as possible, certainly. You're listening to Gourmet Traveler's Set Menu. So today I thought we could play a little bit of a game. I've brought in like a little surprise bag of goodies. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you, can, you can probably guess there's, um, I have some things that are salty, some things that are fatty, a couple of things that are acidic. Um, and I'm kind of going to throw them your way and just see what we can, what we can do with them. Oh, we're going to cook here? <laughs> uh, yeah. For those who can't see, there are no cooking facilities at all in the room that we're in. <laughs> okay. So first... Let's have a look. I have a couple of salty things. I have Ooh, a jar anchovies. of anchovies and some parmesan cheese. Salt. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> salt. Yeah, well done. So first, let's talk about salt and seasoning in general. Like, why is salt important? How can I use salt and salt things better? So when it comes to salt, I think of sort of three basic things. How, how much, and when. And so... Um, Let's start with when. So for meat, it's kind of, it was a mind-blowing thing for me at Chez Panisse to realize that every day we always salted the meat for the next day. And on days when we forgot or couldn't do that, you could taste the difference in the meat. It just, if you don't give salt the time that it needs to travel into an ingredient that's dense, then it'll all stay, you know, toward the outside. And what that is, is when you are making a roast chicken at home and you salt it right before you put it in the oven, what happens? You get this beautiful, salty, crispy skin and then the rest of it is bland. But if you use the same amount of salt and add it earlier, even up to the day before or even two days before, that salt has time to travel and really distribute itself evenly throughout the meat. And so not only does every bite become seasoned, but also you get some textural benefits too. To me, I, I've seasoned a chicken and you know the day before and cooked it right next to a chicken I salted right before cooking. And the way that they butcher is completely different. Like the chickens that have been salted before, I always say they practically butcher themselves. Like, As in when you're carving it up. Yeah, when you're carving it up, you stick your knife in there and the meat like falls off it's so obvious you know and it's one of those things where i couldn't find science to back me up and i was like i don't care because this is something i've done a thousand times or twenty thousand times and i know so there's just a way where meat that has been seasoned in advance is so much more tender and so that's i think one mind-blowing thing that's not necessarily you have to add more just mm. add it earlier for meat, really. For fish, fish is so delicate, you can't really do it so far in advance. And other ingredients, it really depends because salt will draw water out. So if you want water to come out of your tomatoes so that, I don't know, they, they'll they roast more quickly, you know, and then, then you salt them in advance. And if you don't want that water to come out so they can brown more quickly, then you make these choices as you learn about what salt does. Okay, so what about these ingredients here? Anchovies oh, these and are my, two of my favorites. <laughs> my, I keep them in my back pocket. <laughs> it's like, um, you know me. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, how might so, you use them? How so, might you balance them in yeah. a dish? So salty ingredients like anchovies and Parmesan and capers and pickles – those are what I like to call, you know, using them is what I like to call layering salt into a dish. So my favorite example that I give in the book is Caesar salad dressing. But also you use these in plenty of pastas and things. So if I know that I'm going to be adding salted anchovies or salted Parmesan cheese or even saltier pecorino cheese into a dish, then I'll hold back 
on the initial salt that I add until I get the flavor of those other ingredients right. So then I'm not, you know, because what would be the biggest shame for me, like maybe the most heartbreaking thing, would be <laughs> if I'm making a pasta or if I'm making, yeah, if I'm making a pasta that needs a lot of Parmesan cheese, but I add so much salt to the water and to the sauce that it's salted to the maximum point that there's not any more room for me to add any Parmesan, that would be so sad. Mm. You know, I don't ever want to miss out on the other flavor benefits because these things, anchovies, cheeses, a lot of salty ingredients are also full of umami, which is, you know, that fifth taste that we have that really fills out our mouth. And so I never want to hold back and lose out on umami (laughs) (laughs) or other flavors because I oversalted. So that's what I like to think of as layering, which just means before you start out, just think about all the different forms of salt that you might work into a dish. You know, puttanesco, what does that have? Like olives, anchovies, you know, you all have salt in your water. It's debatable. Some people put cheese in the puttanesco, some people don't. Or, you know, there's all those pastas that have pancetta, another salty thing. So you just have to always think about it as a holistic thing and make the decisions um, both for the parts and as the and for the whole as you go. Okay. So let's talk about fat now. So we might think about butter or maybe lard, but fat can be oils. It can also be fatty ingredients, right? So I have something that, I mean, you're from California. We're in Australia. Um, you'll be very familiar with this. They cost about $6 each at the moment here, which what? is insane. I think people are having withdrawals. It's an avocado. Um, Are these grown here in Australia? Yeah, yeah, wow, yeah. that's so beautiful. There's a shortage. <laughs> There's a shortage for us too, yeah. Um, so firstly, where does fat come in in a recipe? How can you use it? And then what would you do with an avocado here? I would probably just cut it in half and scoop it out. <laughs> but, um, you know, fat... So whereas salt is all about heightening flavor, fat does two things. One is it... Um, It both has its own flavor and it also is an incredible distributor of other flavors, which is why, you know, like in Indian food, they do that beautiful sizzle at the end where they'll sizzle um, a little bit of ghee and then add some spices into it. That way the whole oil gets flavored with all of those spices. And that actually happens anytime we use a cooking oil as a medium where that the flavors get sort of absorbed into the fat and then distributed throughout whatever it is that you're cooking. So it's really important to think about the taste of the fat that you're using and how that's going to infuse your entire dish. An example is, you know, I actually don't know what are the local fats here. What are the fats that you guys use as, you know, I guess you have olive trees here in Australia. Yeah, yeah. So there's Australian olive oil. So Exactly. And um, But, you know, like for me, if I'm thinking of French food, butter comes to mind. And if yeah. I'm thinking of Indian food, ghee comes to mind. Or in Korea, they use toasted sesame oil on stuff. And so sometimes if I'm trying to cook something, make it taste, I don't know, Japanese, like I can't start with olive oil because there are no olive trees in Japan. So thinking geographically and culturally appropriate fats is a great way to just get your food in going in the right direction toward the taste that you're after. You have an index of fats of the world in your book. Yes, you? yes, very easy to refer to. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other incredible thing that fat does is where is it just makes all of these amazing textures that are so desirable to us available. So things like creamy mayonnaise or creamy avocado, Mm -hmm. you know, um, crisp crusts on the outside of a steak or something or fried chicken, 
flaky and tender doughs, things like um, pie crust or, you know, like a perfect chocolate chip cookie. And then, of course, light things. When you whip butter, when you whip air into butter or when you whip air into cream, it gets this incredible lightness that then gets transferred to a cake or just a dollop of whipped cream. And fat, because of its structure, allows us to have these wonderful textures. And so much about eating is about the texture in addition to the flavor. So choosing your fat to get that creamy texture is really great. So avocado is really nice when you have a salad that might be kind of lean <laughs> mm. and not only in in you know calories but maybe if it's just leafy or or even if it's very crunchy if you got a lot of crunchy things and you want to add something naturally creamy the creaminess that contrast of crunchy and creamy is what makes eating so fun it's why we love chips and guacamole macaroni and cheese with breadcrumbs on top you know when i'm looking at something and i think it needs something it's often a textural choice so Cheese is really nice to add into salads. Avocado. I'm just like. So I mean, is gesticulating just, <laughs> with an avocado. <laughs> I'm just not like a, <laughs> caressing this avocado. <laughs> um, you have, there's also an avocado matrix in the book, right? Mm-hmm. It's like yeah. a way to take avocados and use them in any kind of salad. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's the same thing where you in that matrix. How did I think about it? Was how do I place these avocados against something that's either very acidic or very crunchy or something that will give it some form of contrast avocados are just this like to me it's you have an avocado you have a salad mm. like you're right there yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay so let's talk about acid what does acid do to your food and how can i use it to my I, advantage oh, oh man acid is just of the four i feel like it's the most clinical and it's in a, in some ways the most mind-blowing for home cooks because it's not this term that's thrown about in, you know in recipes but once you understand what it can do for food i think your cooking can be just so immensely improved and what it does is it gives us contrast and our mouths our palates love contrast because you don't want Mm. something to just be one note you don't want it to only be you know like take that guacamole if it comes and maybe has the right amount of salt so you're like oh it's properly seasoned but if there's no lime juice in it if there's nothing acidic or on your avocado toast then it just falls flat but if you add a little acid and it could come in the form of citrus juice it could come in the form of vinegar and then there's all these other sort of secret acids that Mm. we have out in the world all the fermented things Uh, all of a sudden there's something in your mouth to ricochet off of, right? There's multiple taste buds are being hit. I think that's one thing as I've talked about this book, I never really thought about it even in the writing, but as I've talked about the book over and over again, I've realized for me, the best cooking, the things that I love the most, they really hit every single taste bud in my mouth. And so if I can get fat and salt and acid all hitting, you know, then then it's just going to be like this explosion going on in the mouth. Okay. Well, I brought in citrus, Perfect. as you've suggested, <laughs> a lemon. Uh, I see Caesar salad happening here. Right yeah. Here. yeah. And then some yogurt. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. This morning I had – Is there? there has to be like a special Australian relationship to dairy, right? I mean, there's so much grassland here. Yeah, I mean, we love dairy. Depends yeah. where you go. I Kids just, grow up drinking uh, milk from the carton. <laughs> really? Yeah, I love. I don't know, because I got here this morning and I landed and I went straight to the corner store and I got this yogurt that had passion fruit on it. And it was so good. It was super acidic yogurt, super thick and creamy. And then the passion fruit was so acidic. It just, it was like woke me right up. It was 
so good. Cool. <laughs> I was like, what's up with Australian yogurt? <laughs> <laughs> but yogurt is, you know, my family's from Iran and we use so much yogurt in our cooking and just in our daily eating that that was always my go-to thing. Even as a kid when my mom would make spaghetti and meatballs, mm. we would put yogurt on it, which now like horrifies me. But, yeah. <laughs> but it was just this sort of like I was putting yogurt on everything because I've always thought that I have a very acidic palate. I like really tart things. Yeah. And so I really miss it when the acid isn't there. Okay. And so yogurt could balance something quite fatty right oh absolutely yeah i mean the beauty is if you use a really full fat yogurt then you're getting fat and acid together that's what i'm always after especially in cultured dairy you know things like sour cream and creme fraiche and cheese is like it's a triple threat if there's salt in there you get salt fat and acid in one in one bite okay uh and then if we just talk about heat as well you're not talking about heat like chili heat you're talking about fire um i couldn't bring any with me today (laughs) what is heat important for how can i use it to my advantage i think the thing i realized that was has really guided me through the kitchen is that it doesn't matter what the source of heat that you're cooking on is what matters is the rate of heat and so you could be making the same braise over a fire in the oven or on the stove and All you're looking for in any case is for the thing to come up to a boil and then cook very slowly at a simmer. It doesn't matter what the source of heat is. And that was a really mind-blowing lesson for me. And it's allowed me to be a much more versatile cook because if I run out of stove space, I can just slip something in the oven and know that I need it to be at the temperature that will give me the thing that I'm looking for, whether that's cranking it up super high or leaving it super low so the thing cooks super gently. So in general, this is not 100% of the time true, but a really good rule of thumb is that ingredients that kind of fall into two um, groups. There's those things that are naturally tender and whose tenderness we need to preserve when we cook them. And then there are foods that are tough or dry and who we need to make them tender. So if your food is naturally tender, I mean things like a pork chop or a steak or even like scrambled eggs, what you want to do is keep retain that tenderness and in general for that you want a faster rate of heat you want to sear that steak on the outside and retain the moistness on the inside so the dangerous thing for that would be cooking it really slowly over a long time because that would dry it out and if your food is dry or tough and you need to make it grow tender things like oxtails or short ribs or dried beans or grains then in general they are going to want to cook at a slower rate over a gentler heat and often with some water to really encourage them to become tender. And again, it doesn't matter if that thing happens in your backyard, on the patio, you know, in a microwave. It's more about the rate of heat than it is anything else. And that's why you don't need to necessarily, you know, be a slave to the oven dial. It's That's also why I realize I, every time I turn on the stove, I bend over, I bend over to look at the um, flame because I don't know anything until I see like what that flame is. And then I look at how the food in the pan is responding to that heat. I remember I had a teacher at TAFE um, at cooking, cooking college in Australia. And he always said, uh, you control the heat. Don't let the heat control you. Right? Really good. So that means giving me a thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I guess you can't hear a thumbs up. <laughs> That's all from the podcast for this week. We'll be back again soon. And in the meantime, if you want to make better hot cross buns, chocolate cakes and Anzac biscuits, you'll find all that and more in the latest issue of Gourmet Traveller, on sale now. Until next time, thanks for listening.